they build their own world. They build a theater, they build a church, they have a casino, they have a boxing ring, they have dancing lessons. You can go there and learn how to speak French or German or Spanish. Um, there's a lending library. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name's Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor. And that was Nick Guyatt you heard at the top there. And I'm continuing my discussion with him as we talk about Dartmoor Prison and the terrible massacre and the experience of the prisoners in that prison. And these prisoners were not prisoners who had committed crimes. These were prisoners who were prisoners of war and that was the War of 1812. So we talk a little bit about life in the early 19th century and how the British and the American governments had really, you could argue, conspired to make life a misery for these these prisoners. And it's an interesting discussion about race relations during that period as well. Now, uh, elsewhere at Aspects of History headquarters, I've mentioned this before, but I want to mention it again, and I'm going to put a link in the show notes. We've got our unpublished novel competition that continues to run. It is running till June, so still plenty of time for you to write your novel if you haven't written one yet. It's just historical fiction. That's pretty much the only rule there is. I'll put a link in the uh, show notes, but you'll get all the details there. And there is a prize of £500, and the novel is published by one of the UK's leading independent publishers. So even if you haven't written a novel, get a friend or a a family member who has to uh, contact us and, and sign up to the competition. Everyone has a novel in them. I've said this before. Christopher Hitchens said, and that's where it should stay. Elsewhere, we've got our... Aspects of History Book Club, which we had an exclusive interview with Andrew Roberts, the acclaimed historian. He wrote a brilliant biography of Winston Churchill and of Napoleon. And his book that we're covering in the book club is Masters and Commanders, which is the story of Winston Churchill, Field Marshal Alan Brooke, General George C. Marshall and President... FDR, President Roosevelt, Franklin D. Roosevelt. It's the story of how the four of them worked to win the war in the West. Finally, uh, it's the anniversary of the Falklands War this week, of the invasion of the Falklands on the 2nd of April 1982. And there was a fantastic documentary on Channel 4 describing uh, the Falklands War and how the British and the Argentines fought together. It's a brilliant documentary, involves um, members of the armed forces of both sides. And it's very interesting because it involves British soldiers discussing how close Britain did come to defeat. Now, I'll put a link in there. I've reviewed it. It's on the homepage, the review, and it links through to the episode the documentary which is on all four so available free for uk viewers and i think if you're outside the uk you might have to put a vpn on and then you can pretend you're in the uk but you didn't hear that from me 
So, as ever, if you want to get a hold of me, you can on the Twitter. I'm at OlliWCQ. That's at O-L-L-I-E-W-C-Q. Always happy to hear from you. And I'll hand you over to me and Nick Guyatt talking about Dartmoor Prison. With the div- division of, of each prison block, I guess, it, prison num- the numbering system, one to seven, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, prison four seems to be largely populated by African-Americans. Mm-hmm. And I've got to say, reading the book, it, that sounds like the area I'd want to be in. They seem to brew the best beer. Is that right? And they had the best parties. They had theatre. <laughs> and they had a rule of law as well. I mean, look, the whole thing is a complete, again, from the perspective of interpretation, is a total nightmare because, so, so just to describe how we get a prison for it. So initially it's where the French are, uh, and the French are basically in all the different prison blocks. But when the Americans arrive in April of 1813, they're put at the top of prison four, which is where these guys, the Romans are, the naked kind of feral depraved guys, or more depraved, lots of depravity in the prison. So in April 1813, the Americans start there. Uh, then in October of 1813, uh, the white American prisoners make a request to the British prison governor. And I should have said the governor is a, um, a Royal Navy captain. So at that point, it's a guy called Isaac Cockgrave. So, so the other thing to think about here is that the prison is basically kind of a Navy outpost. So you imagine all of these kind of captains who've gone off and sailed around the world and, you know, fought alongside Nelson, kind of getting their final gig running a prison, which ends up being quite problematic. Again, I get into that in the book. So the white American prisoners in October of 1813, who are at the top of prison four, which is this prison in the, uh, this prison block in the middle of the prison, they write to the governor and they say, uh, please, could you separate us from black people? So black Americans, we don't want to be alongside our compatriots who are black. And the reason they don't give the reason in the letter that they communicate to the British or or rather many of these letters are gone from the archive. What we have is a kind of um, summary of the letter as it was received by um, the prison authorities called the Transport Board in London. And it doesn't actually tell us the reason that was used by these white American sailors for wanting to separate from the black sailors. Now, one of these white American sailors that I can tell you categorically was in the prison because he's in the register and all the dates check out. It's a guy called Charles Andrews. Uh, And Charles Andrews later said that the reason that these white prisoners wanted rid of the black prisoners is that the black prisoners kept stealing from the white prisoners. Now, again, this is really interesting, right? Because a lot of historians, not many people have written about this at length, but a lot of people have written a tiny bit about Dartmoor. And everyone's like, oh yeah, okay, so black people were stealing. So why do we think black people were stealing? We have one source for this by the guy who asked to be segregated. So I offer two theories in the book. And again, this is speculation, but I hope it's kind of informed and embedded in the sources. The first theory is I think actually that the white Americans wanted to get rid of the French. (laughs) They wanted to be away from the Romans. So one way to get away from the Romans is to blame black Americans, which again is a language the British authorities would understand. But the second reason, and this may be the more substantial one, is that when you're at sea, you've got captains, you've got officers, you've got this very strange world. You remember I told you earlier that for black people, there is opportunity at sea, as it were, below decks. When you're up on top of the deck and you're an officer, that's an all-white space almost entirely when it comes to ships. But below decks, things are actually a lot more equal. But of course, the equality is based on everyone below decks being under the thumb, the absolute rule of the captain and the officers. 
What happens when you hit Dartmoor is that generally speaking, the captain and the officers, those kinds of people are put somewhere else. So actually they are very often either put on parole, which is a fancy word back then, which meant they basically got their own slightly better conditions of captivity. So they basically were given like a, a house in a nearby town rather than having to be in a prison. Or they were put in a separate part of the prison, a separate part of Dartmoor. So actually what you get is this kind of black and white ordinary sailor kind of majority when they're at sea, they're being governed over by the same white guys. When they're in a prison, those governor, kind of white guy, captain, officer types, they all vanish. So what I think is going on in the prison is that prisoners themselves are forming committees, they're forming juries, they're forming associations to try and govern what happens with inside these, within these prison spaces. The, the, the guy running the prison he actually doesn't peer into what's happening within the prison blocks that much. The British give the prisoners quite a lot of autonomy. So this is actually all of a sudden a challenge for these white American sailors, because in a way they have to share power with black people. And that's the reason, I think, that you get this segregation moment. That what's actually going on is that white sailors recognize that they're not going to be able to run that prison, that prison block, without Black people having an equal say, and that's what freaks them out. So the combination of those two things means that um, the request is made in October 1813. It's granted by the British authorities, and again, we don't have a good paper trail on exactly what the reasoning was, but it's granted. And then over the course of 1814, initially, the Black sailors get to share uh, the very, very top part of prison four, the fourth prison block, uh, with a few French people, but then almost all of the French are released in the spring of 1814. By June of 1814, every last French prisoner has been released because the French war is over, temporarily as it turns out. And at that point, all of prison floor four is given over to black people. And that's where things get really interesting because effectively the thousand or so black sailors in prison four, they build their own world. They build a theater, they build a church, they have a casino, they have a boxing ring, they have dancing lessons, you can go there and learn how to speak French or German or Spanish. Um, there's a lending library. I mean, they have this amazing world that they build. And the cool thing about Dartmoor is although you have to go back to your prison blocks at night and your block gets locked up by the turnkeys, during the day, generally speaking, the prisoners are allowed to move from one prison to another. So here's the irony. These white American prisoners originally asked to be separated from the black prisoners. But actually, when the black prison really takes off, these white prisoners are coming back all the time. And you find that out by looking at the diaries and journals that are contemporaneous with the events, because this is a story that got kind of deliberately forgotten and distorted when those white sailors wrote up their memoirs 20 or 30 or 40 years later. Then they were like, oh, no, 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 we just went to the black prison just to laugh at the terrible plays. Or we weren't really interested in religion in the black prison. Go off and look at the diaries and the journals from the time, and you see a really different story. So it's bizarre, right? On the one hand, it's a story of segregation and racism. And on the other hand, it's this story of a kind of fascination on the part of white people with the fact that black people seem to be having a better time. Well, there's one uh, contemporaneous source, Frank Palmer, I think, mm -hmm. that, um, uh, who comes across as quite an all right guy. Uh, yeah, I love he him. He's great, isn't he? Uh, um, now, we're talking on April Fool's. I've got to mention this. He, they pay a, a terrible prank on him. Could you, could you talk about that? 
I mean, to be honest, it's not only a terrible prank. I mean, in the context of what's coming, you know. Screw, I know. I know. Uh, it's, this is slightly out of order because we're going to get to the to the the what yeah, we're well, talk about. So, so, so grim stuff happens a little bit later on. But yeah, uh, his um. So he, in a prison, you have um uh, what's called a mess. So the mess is basically a group of usually six sailors who all cook together. They're all kind of like they'll sling their hammocks in the same spot in the prison. Sometimes they're like organized together to like set up a shop or they'll kind of hunt together as a pack in the prison, if you like. So they're usually pretty good friends so on this particular day frank palmer who's then i forget what he's like 21 years old he's a very young guy uh one of the least successful privateersmen ever basically gets captured within about 24 hours of sailing off from the american coast he's from connecticut uh he gets captured by the british even before he gets into the atlantic and then gets thrown into all these different bits of the prison system so you know spends time in bermuda spends time in canada and eventually gets taken to dartmoor and um i mean talk about like the cost of becoming a privateer you have all these images and visions and then you end up you know one, one day on the privateer ship and then like hundreds of days in british prisons anyway Palmer's messmates on the 1st of April, 1815, they tell him, hey, yeah, um, uh, your cousin's at the gate. Uh, your cousin uh, says that if you just come out now, then like the British are going to let you go. And he's like, yes. So he basically bans through all of the things that are open to get to the part of the prison where you, you hit the kind of big, big, big gate and start shouting at the prison guard. Yeah, I heard my cousin. My, my cousin's here. My, my cousin, Bobby, he, he's here to pick me up. Right. And then <laughs> eventually he realizes that it's April the 1st and that his messmates have lied about the fact that his cousin is there. And, you know, it's not like a novel, right? Or it's not like a memoir. He's actually writing this in his diary on the day. So it has a kind of unconfected, like, heartfelt disappointment. <laughs> like you can really tell that this guy's hopes have just been completely crushed. So, um, yeah, there's an April Fool's in the, in the book. Now, one man who was responsible for, well, I guess all American prisoners of war in Britain, and he didn't, well, he, he certainly comes up against the famed wall of bureaucracy uh, that, that, that Britain erects to almost any difficulty that it doesn't want to deal with. But yeah. this chap, um, Beasley, is it, um, I forget his first name. Reuben, Reuben Gaunt Beasley. Yes, yes. So, yeah, he's meant to, help these american prisoners of war he doesn't he doesn't really do that does he <laughs> i mean he doesn't and i mean he is a nightmare in lots of ways but also i mean one of the things in writing this book is to kind of understand how almost everybody on the american side is in a terrible situation uh, i mean you could maybe blame madison or you could maybe blame jefferson like the guys at the very top of the tree you can imagine they could have behaved quite differently but this beasley guy i mean the first thing to understand is that the early diplomatic core as it were is just like institutionally corrupt and but i shouldn't even call it corrupt it's just like corruption is basically the business model right because the state department doesn't have enough money and doesn't really have the will to create a fully professional service of people all the way around the world who are going to look after american interests instead it imagines the way to do it is to get merchants to get kind of like traders who are happy to be based overseas even sea captains in some cases to agree to become u.s consul and they'll kind of divide their time picking up a few fees from helping foreigners in distress. So basically helping Americans that wash up in a place like London or Plymouth. But most of the money and most of their rationale for being there will be that they're doing their own business. Well, clearly, that's fine until you're at war. 
if suddenly, I mean, you can see right now from the terrible stuff that's going on in, in Russia and Ukraine, I mean, obviously, like, if you have a diplomat right now in Moscow and, like, 90% of their income is going to come from the business they're doing with, you know, uh, Russian, Russian industry or whatever, like, it's a nightmare, right? Like, that wouldn't work as a model. That was the model. So this Beasley guy... Uh, goes over there in 1809, is arranging all of this kind of tobacco shipping and, and other stuff from uh, his associates in Virginia, while at the same time he's supposed to be helping out American sailors and American merchants and business people. Well, I mentioned before, there's already this massive controversy, which is that the Brits are regularly using the Royal Navy to stop American ships and dragging American sailors from those ships, claiming that they're British. So this practice known as impressment has been going on for years and years and years. It's still going on in 1809, 1810. Paul Beasley, who is the US consul, on the one hand, he's getting a sailor's mother writing to him saying, my kid has been nabbed by the British, the evil British. And, you know, uh, full disclosure, we were kind of the evil British at this moment. Uh, and BC's like, oh, yeah, this sucks. I'd really like to help her. But I'm also very keen to remain friendly with the Duke of Gloucester, you know, or whatever else. So, in fact, he ends up playing both sides against each other, even before the War of 1812. And there's this amazing scene uh, a couple of months before the war begins, in June of 1812, where Beasley is actually at a dinner in London, which is a dinner of the Society for the Relief of Foreigners in Distress. <laughs> He's like one of the sponsors of this dinner. It's like, dude, the British government is picking up American sailors routinely and throwing them into the Royal Navy for like a decade or more. And you're showing up at their like gala to celebrate British philanthropy to foreigners in distress. There is a mismatch here. So when the war begins, Beasley becomes the only member of the diplomatic corps to stay in London. So they, the, the US government chooses him to be the only person who remains. And I mean, he is in a difficult position because, you know, he's basically saying to Britain, you shouldn't be holding all of these American sailors in the Royal Navy. And now that the war has begun, you could potentially be forcing them to fire on their own compatriots. So please release them. And then Britain says, nah, okay, what we'll do is we'll release them into Dartmoor Prison or into the hulks at Chatham, or into the prison at Plymouth. And BC's like, well, how can you turn them into prisoners of war when you've illegally forced them to serve in the Royal Navy? And Britain's like, meh, better that than being still in the Royal Navy, right? So poor Beasley finds himself trying to do what he thinks is right by these guys, but the prisoners, especially those who've been stuck in the Royal Navy, they can't believe that they're then being dumped in a place like Dartmoor. And so they imagine that Beasley rather than the whole kind of structure and the whole system, is the person to blame. And, um, and in the first months of 1815, they actually hang Beasley in effigy at Dartmoor Prison. So there's a trial. He's there, you know, sort of stuffed rags together. They've called it Reuben Beasley. Solemn trial. Um, Beasley himself, but Beasley himself says nothing. And then they hang him from one of the prison buildings, which, you know, some of the American prisoners are like, this is a bit much. But it got to be that bad that the Americans felt that their government was not only not helping them, but was kind of actively conspiring against them. And BC was very much in the middle of that. So, yeah, it's not quite as bad as hanging a monkey in 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 the northeast, but it's getting close, <laughs> isn't it? But um, so I suppose we're getting to a desperate stage now for the prisoners. And this is where this uh, terrible event happens. So yeah, so mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, well, you'll you'll be able to explain it a lot better than I will. 
Well, so one thing to keep in mind about the prison is that um, it's a bit of a moving target in terms of who's there. So I mentioned that six and a half thousand Americans end up being put in the prison. They start arriving in 1813, in the spring of 1813. By the end of 1813, there are only about a thousand Americans who are there. What begins to happen after the war with France ends for the first time, so in the spring of 1814, is that Britain begins to concentrate Americans it's captured all around the world, concentrate those prisoners on Dartmoor. So actually you get people like this guy we talked about before, the April Fool, Frank Palmer, who's originally been held in Bermuda and then gets held in a prison uh, called Melville Island, which is in Nova Scotia. Then they move him in the summer of 1814 across to Dartmoor. They're doing this to people from all over. Some are coming from like Calcutta, some of them are coming from Cape Town. Some of them are coming from Jamaica. They're coming from everywhere. And they're all being directed towards Dartmoor. So the prison really begins to fill up. Uh, you're getting basically hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of new Americans arriving every month from May of 1814. Some people have been released, but not many. And again, I won't get into it because it's kind of complicated. But basically, the decision to kind of like do prisoner exchanges, it turns out to be the case that um, the Americans are not capturing many Brits. The Brits are capturing a lot of Americans. So there's an imbalance in terms of the number of prisoners on each side. So actually, it's pretty hard to exchange prisoners and to get exchanged. And if you're an ordinary privateersman, an ordinary sailor, it's never going to happen because it's the very small U.S. Navy personnel at Dartmoor that get out, first of all. Anyway, end of 1814, you've got at that point probably something like five and a half thousand in the prison. So maybe a thousand in total have been released. Five and a half thousand are stuck there. Everyone knows the war is coming to an end. Uh, December 21st, uh, 1814, you've got the Treaty of Ghent, which is agreed in Belgium between the US and Britain. That treaty then has to be ratified in London and then gets sent to the United States for ratification. By February of 1814, the news uh, in the United States has arrived of the treaty. It's quickly ratified. And at the start of March 1815, the treaty comes back to Britain. News reaches Dartmoor that everything is over, but they don't open the prison gates. And they don't do this for a bunch of different reasons, but one of them is that the British and Reuben Beasley, the American consul, are in agreement that they don't want a kind of disorganized uh, exodus of American sailors kind of trickling in all kinds of different directions. What they need to do is to arrange a proper repatriation. Now, if you think about it, if you've got 5,000 or so sailors to repatriate, maybe two or 300 per ship, you can need quite a lot of ships. But here's where Napoleon roars back into our story. The moment that it turns out that news reaches Britain in February uh, of 1815 that Napoleon has escaped from Elba and is going to Paris, obviously the British government freaks out. Suddenly, Britain wants to hire millions of ships. So all of the kind of private ships you can hire are being gobbled up by the British government. Poor Reuben Beasley can't find any ships. He can't find anyone who's willing to hire him a ship to repatriate the Dartmoor prisoners. So they get stuck there. So there are two or three ships that appear in March just evacuating like a few hundred Americans, but the vast majority are still there. I should add that over the winter of 1814, 1815, the weather has been terrible as usual, but also there's been a lot of sickness in the prison. So a number of different conditions, gel fever, typhus, cholera, like all kinds of different things. But Americans are kind of dying in their droves, I mean, dozens and then hundreds. And so effectively, if you're an American in a prison, it's like I've been here for a year or two years, or I've been in custody for longer. The war is over. I can't leave. And my friend has just died in the prison infirmary. You're going to feel pretty frustrated and desperate. So that's the background for what takes place on the 6th of April, 1815, which is initially a kind of altercation. 
between the Americans, a small group of the Americans and the prison guards, but which turns into a full-scale confrontation and then a one-sided shooting match. And we have nine, uh, nine people killed and 48 ca- casualties, 24 which is serious. Ser- yeah, seriously wounded. Um, so you've got dozens of people basically whose lives are going to be altered uh, and you've got nine who die. Uh, six of them straight away and three over the course of the coming days and weeks. Yeah, so um, again, I mentioned earlier about the fact that the prison is run by the Royal Navy. The folks guarding the prison are actually militiamen. And they're militiamen from throughout Ireland and the British Isles. So occasionally there'll be the Derbyshire militia or it might be the Yorkshire militia, uh, might be one of the Irish militias. At this particular moment in April of 1815, it's the militia from Somerset under the command of a guy called Jolliffe. Uh, And Jolliffe's brother actually was one of the kind of heroes of Waterloo. But the particular Jolliffe that winds up running the Somerset militia is an altogether more kind of hard-nosed and less heroic character and the moment it looks as if he he believes the americans are trying to escape on the 6th of april and this is not true but what what happens is the americans have been playing a ball game the ball goes over one of the inner walls of the prison baseball well okay so i didn't want to say (laughs) because i don't want to get a lot of like i don't that's where i would fear getting a lot of hate mail americans do not like the idea that you're saying baseball existed in 1815 that would ruin careers but it does look (laughs) like baseball right okay so the, the ball soars over the inner wall of the prison uh, the Americans ask the British uh, militia guards to throw it back. Usually the guards do throw it back, but on this day they don't. And actually, it's kind of funny to think, right? Had they thrown the ball back, then I probably wouldn't have written this book, uh, or at least the book wouldn't have had such a kind of terrible ending. Um, anyway, they refuse to throw it back. So it turns out that this inner wall, so there's a yard where the kind of barracks is, and then there's the yard where the the, uh, prisoners are playing ball. Um, uh, The wall in between the two has got a few loose stones in it. So the Americans begin initially with their hands trying to get more of the stones out. Then somebody rushes to one of the prison blocks and manages to get one of the crowbars off the windows and brings back the crowbar and starts crowbarring away at the wall. This keeps going. There are various distractions going on in the prison that mean the guards don't pick up on it straight away. But eventually, when the guards do see that this inner wall is being breached, the Americans are almost all the way through it. The guards mistakenly, I think, believe the Americans are about to try to escape from the prison, which would be pretty unlikely, right? Because once you get out of the prison gates, you're in the middle of Darbor. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a long way to get to Plymouth. Uh, plenty of chance for you to be apprehended. Anyway, so the guards begin to freak out. They call on the um, uh, the agent, as he's known, the governor of the prison, who at this point is a Royal Navy captain called Thomas Shortland. Shortland's already turned in for the evening. It's about six in the evening. Uh, so he rushes out. Uh, and essentially, the soldiers, the militiamen, line up in the main kind of square in the middle of the prison with the prisoners, the Americans on the other side, kind of taunting them and kind of moving towards them. The prisoners draw their weapons. The Americans kind of are forced back. Then the prisoners draw their weapons again. There's some bayonetting going on with those Americans who are closest to where the uh, the uh, militiamen's guns are. Somebody on the American side claims they hear an order to fire. I think it's more likely that one of the militiamen just panicked and fired. But then there's a general firing. Now, that first firing in the center of the prison 
almost certainly accounts for several fatalities. It's hard to be sure how many. But where the massacre really gets its name is that as the Americans then flee back to the different prison blocks, they're pursued by the militiamen, who effectively begin to operate as death squads and begin um, turning out all of their frustrations and their prejudices and their anger from having to put up with these Americans for so long. They put all of that onto these defenseless prisoners. And that's where they begin shooting uh, absolutely uh, indiscriminately. And this goes on for the better part of an hour. It's absolutely terrifying. There are so many people who are kind of lying wounded or dead in the prison yards. And it's really nightfall that brings it to an end. Uh, and at that point, clearly, there's a bit of a diplomatic catastrophe because the war between Britain and the United States is supposed to be over. But Britain has just effectively murdered nine Americans in cold blood. So this is a challenge, shall we say, for the two governments in London and in Washington. And, um, and that's where the story goes next. Yeah, well, um, I could talk you about this for hours and and we've literally only scratched the surface there's so so our listeners there's so much more to to read about in this book which is uh, what's made uh, made it so enjoyable so we'll end it there but I, I wanted to um thank you very much for coming on it's been fantastic uh, it's out on the 7th of april the book uh, yeah, so it's out with One World on the 7th of April um, here in the UK and the 5th of April if you guys are listening from the from the US. Great, wonderful. And then I think you're going on a book tour in America, aren't you? Well, that's the plan. I've not been to the US for three years. So actually, the last time I was there, I was in all of these archives on the East Coast, looking up all of these kind of sailors' letters and trying to piece together the story over there. This is back in 2019. And, you know, I go to the US two or three times a year, usually. And little did I know when I left in April of 2019, it'll be three years before I was getting back. But yeah, I'm going to go and speak about the book in a bunch of places over there. And um, yeah, I'm going to try and not stir up any trouble, Oliver. Like, I realize now that I'm kind of exhuming the story of enmity between Britain and the United States. It's sort of not very good for the brand, is it? No, I, I we're definitely the British are the bad guys in this. And yeah. I hope it doesn't cause any, uh, any disgruntlement and, and it develops into something. I'll start with an apology, right? I mean, that, that can't <laughs> yeah. be wrong. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you to you and uh, to your listeners. And for all you do, Oliver, it's really appreciated. I hope you enjoyed that. I found that story fascinating. It's also one of those stories that you can tell people and 99% of people wouldn't have heard about it. And so I do hope you do tell people and better still get the book because I mentioned this in the, in the interview. It really does cover all sorts of different parts of the um, history of that period. It covers the prior to the War of 1812. It, it covers the American administrations, the British and the French. Life on the high seas, life in a prison, life on in a port as well. And from all different nationalities and races and religions. And so Nick's done a fantastic job in... in um, in capturing uh, that time, which is ultimately the job of a historian. Next week, we've got Gordon Corrigan, who's um, acclaimed historian. He's talking to me about three different periods of history and how the world would have changed had a battle gone another way. Would we all be speaking Greek? Would we all be looking at two different Americas and would Russia and Germany have united 
Who knows? But Gordon's discussing the Peloponnesian War, the American Civil War, and also the Eastern Front during the Second World War. And we have an interesting chat, and it involves a bit of Ukraine as well. That's coming up over the next few weeks. If you enjoyed, please subscribe and like if your app lets you do that. And I'll leave you till next week. Thank you and good night.